All right, I'm turning once again back to the text we just read a moment ago, Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll begin here in verse number 5. I want to draw your attention to that verse. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Our subject this morning is the chastening of the Lord. If you notice, verse 5 begins with the word and. It is a connecting thought to the verses that have been previously mentioned, specifically verse 4, about not yet resisting unto blood, striving against sin. So there is a connection between verse 5, the chastisement of the Lord, being connected to the resistance unto blood. We learned last week that this context addresses the issue of resisting sin, not in a general sense as we learned last week, but specifically the reference to the sin of unbelief. Uh, There is the tendency for us to return back to a state of not unbelief that there's a God or unbelief in our salvation, but an unbelief in His promises and unbelief in the various aspects. Unbelief is when we take our eyes off of Christ. When we begin to look to other means, to look to other resources, we take our eyes off of the Lord instead of looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, which is what we learned last week in verse 2. It is the sin of unbelief, is the sin we identified last week, that is the weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us back in verse 1. It is unbelief becomes that great weight. The weight around our neck, the weight around our feet, the weight which halts us in the race is unbelief. Now I could ask today, and I won't do this, but I could ask, is everyone here today a believer in Christ Jesus alone? Has everyone here repented and believed in Christ alone? And there might be a response that might be 100%, might be 90%. I don't know what it might be. But the reality is, is there are times in our life that even those who would answer that question, yes, have times when the sin of unbelief creeps in and it besets us. It halts us. We revert back to our old ways. You can study the life of David and you can find many times where David, even as a follower of God, a converted man, if you will, was tempted to turn back to trust in himself Uh, Even in the sin of numbering the people, you remember that he was told, do not number the people. It seems like something so easy and so simple. And yet David goes and numbers the people and he, he pays a great price for his desire. There's an aspect of unbelief in that. So the sin of unbelief is that sin specifically here, which the writer even begins to make mention in verse 4, you have not resisted unto blood. You You have not strove or strived against this sin. You haven't resisted unto blood to prevent and keep the sin of unbelief. Now we might say today, I'm going to gain victory over a vice in my life. I'm going to gain victory over this. I'm going to resist. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to set my mind in the right track. And I'm going to resist whatever that is. And you might be very, very sincere in your desire to resist that. The sin of unbelief is such a serious matter here. He's telling them that you have not resisted unto blood. 
That's how serious the matter of unbelief should be taken. The manner in which the writer tells us that the Lord deals with the sin of unbelief is he employs what's called chastisement, the chasing of the Lord. Now, depending on what type of a church you grew up in, that word means various things. Some churches you grew up in and chastening was described or defined as punishment, meant to inflict harm, meant to inflict injury. I do not believe scripturally that that is what the intent here at all is, is an intent to harm or even in a sense, punishment. Discipline, yes. Punishment, judgment, no. Chastisement of the Lord is reserved for only those who are already in the faith. They are his children. Chastisement is not for the unbeliever. We cannot say biblically, accurately, correctly, that the Lord is chastising, and again, I'm just using a random example, my unbelieving neighbor. The chastisement of the Lord is for the Lord's people. It's directed at people who are already in the faith. The Lord's purposes are not to inflict injury or harm on his people. Now again, depending on what kind of church you grew up in, you might have thought that was the case. You may have been taught that this is meant to inflict such harm to you that it causes you to come crawling back to Jesus on your belly. That's not what the intent was. The intent here to those that hold chastisement to be some form of a punishment or a judgment designed to injure the recipient, that they would be forced to crawl in a defeated or somehow they would have to be brought through what one writer said, the back door of mercy. In other words, that there's such shame with the chastisement of God that if he chastises you, listen, you can come back to God, but go through the back door. Folks, I want to tell you this morning, that's not my God. And the mercy of God doesn't work that way. That if I am in the faith today, I am one of his children. And I'm telling you with 100% certainty, I am one of his children today. Not by any merits or of righteousness or works which I have done, but by the merits and righteousness of Christ alone. It has always been that way. It will always be that way. But chastisement is not meant to bring you to a place where you, are, you can come back after I've chastised you, but come through the side door. Come through the back door. No, it's meant for our good. The writer deals with the most important aspects of this chastisement by telling us that it is only those he loves that he chastises. He only provides this chastisement to those he loves. Some have had the opinion over the years that not only is chastisement meant to be a punishment or a judgment, but rather that type of a mentality does not achieve what chastisement is supposed to achieve. It achieves the opposite. If you continue to strike and strike and strike at a person and continue to tell them over and over and over again, listen, you can come back to God, but you better come back realizing you're only available now through the back door. You are painting a false picture of God's mercy and you're painting a false picture of God's restoration. It's not intended to be strike, strike, strike so that you'll suddenly be made right. Even the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1, he said, why should you be stricken anymore? You will, revolt, you will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. 
It's the religious people of the day. We, Jesus would have called them Pharisees who believe, not only believe that chastisement is meant to be a punishment, but they believe that they are the arbiters of it. In other words, they get to tell you and direct and guide and say, this is chastisement and this is not chastisement as if they're the arbiters of dispensing it. Uh, I will say this unapologetically. Um, it is not the job of a pastor or elder to chastise you. Chastisement is of the Lord. Now, if God uses His Word to chastise you and God uses His Word to correct you, praise God for it. But don't come and say, Preacher, you need to chastise that person who's doing this. The chastening of the Lord comes from the Lord, not from me. Now, I might proclaim truth, and we've heard this cliche, no matter what churches you've been in, Preacher, that message today really stepped on my toes. I have never once prepared a message with the intent of, will this step on your toes? To me, that's very shallow, but that's not my intent. The intent is, though, is to declare what God's Word actually says. Those who believe that chastisement is meant to be to inflict injury or harm, they also use the Word of God as an instrument of punishment. They misuse God's Word. They believe that they are the ones who determine who deserves the chastening and how it will be administered and what the chastening will look like. But I'm going to show you in a few moments that even the writer here doesn't declare and show with specifics what the chastening looks like. Like he doesn't say, if you're chastened of the Lord by this act or you're chastened by the Lord with this no, he says the chase of the Lord is specific for the people of God and it has a specific purpose. But he doesn't say what the chastening looks like. Forced morality. Forced compliance. Again, some of you grew up in churches that that's what your entire worship Sunday was. Forced morality and forced compliance. You must do or else. You must be this or you're not. Or if you do, you will be forced to make recompense for that. Morality that's produced under some sort of distress or a threat of a further punishment is one of the clearest and most obscure, however, I think understood definitions of self-righteousness. So if you begin to tell me that I'm going to force morality on you, I'm going to force change on you under duress or threat of punishment, I must be one real self-righteous person that I could declare that on you. So what is the writer talking about? The first part of verse 5, first of all, I want you to see the chastisement is not punishment or judgment. Now he says, despise not, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. So we know that there is a very real chastening. We know that this chastening may produce weariness. To faint is to grow and be weary. Now, I understand people faint for various reasons and medical reasons, and there's a lot of places we could go, but the faint here in the context is fainting under the chastening of the Lord. When thou art rebuked, rebuked is a strong word. Uh, very rarely do you hear in parent circles, hey, how do you rebuke your child? It's a rare statement. You don't usually do it. It's usually how do you correct your child or how do you discipline your child? Very rarely do we hear rebuke. But rebuke 
is a corrective discipline. It's meant to correct. Again, he's going to say it's meant to correct, not punish. It's meant to produce change. I don't do what I do with my children. My children aren't little anymore. But when they were little, my point was not to inflict injury or harm on them. It was never my intent. But can I tell you that even we as parents, out of some of our own mistaken passions, inflicted injury and harm by our words and how we said it, maybe what we did, but we didn't intend that because of the frailty of our humanity, right? That's why we do what we, that's why we did it. We thought, I've got to settle this. I've got to correct this action now. And it's got to be, I got to make it perfect so that this child does not grow up. And you know, all the things we talked about, they're going to turn into a criminal if we don't fix this. But think about this, that even in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, Christ himself suffered the judgment that was due to his people. So Christ absorbs the full wrath of God, not a part of it, not some of it, the full wrath of God with the intended that we should have been the intended recipients of that judgment. 100%. Because he who was without sin, who knew no sin, became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin for us. Not that he became a sinner, but he became that representative of sin. He has inflicted upon him the entirety of the wrath of God. Chastisement is this correction of a child. Correction of a child who has strayed from the correct path. By a father whose single interest, whose single desire is the welfare and the goodness of that child. For God's children, the design of chastisement is not meant to inflict injury or harm, but it's meant to correct, and in this case, where the eyes are looking. Looking unto Jesus, which is what we learned last week, right? That's what the intent is. The sin of unbelief causes our eyes to look away from Christ and to look to something else. When we fall into that trap of thinking that our salvation is Christ plus works, or Christ plus something else, we are falling prey to hints of unbelief. That it's not enough that Christ actually accomplished my salvation on the cross, that he must need something else from me. And as we dealt with this morning in our 10 o'clock, that in order for me to really be saved, I must be baptized. No, baptism is not part of your salvation. We declared this morning at 10 o'clock, we do not believe here in baptismal regeneration. You're not saved by baptism. But if I begin to have a doubt about that it's complete in Christ and that my baptism's adding something to it, I'm wrong. No, I'm being baptized as an act of obedience in obedience to my Lord's command, but I am confirming that I am indeed a child of God. But we also understand that this chastisement, God never has, does not have a cause. In other words, chastisement is the result of something that needs to be corrected. And in the case of the writer of Hebrews here, the cause is always addressed in the remedy. In other words, what the problem is, the chastening is to correct that problem. So if I'm falling into the sin of unbelief, chastisement is meant to what? To correct where I'm looking. To correct my vision back to Christ. 
Now, we all say it every day. I'm looking unto Jesus. I'm looking unto Christ alone. We can, we all, we, everyone here today who's in the faith knows how to Christian speak, right? We know the terms. We know the vernacular. We know the vocabulary. But do you know there are times even in our week where a little bit of unbelief comes in? You know, if we sin willfully, if we sin willfully, that's an act of unbelief to a sense because we believe, we're failing to believe that there are consequences for that action. Unbelief is subtle. We have a lot of people that are fighting against the, the sin of unbelief in, the, in an unbeliever, right? Like, it's not hard to see unbelief in an unbelieving person. It's really hard to identify even an ounce of unbelief in a person who is saved. And yet we all go through it. We all have times where God has said he'll provide, right? Let's use the basic. God has said he'll provide and we look and we don't know how God's going to take care of us. And we begin to look to other ways and other avenues and think, that's, a, that's unbelief. I'm distrusting, even for a moment, I'm distrusting. Now again, what the writer does not indicate is when does this chastening come in? When does it start? Does it start with one sin, two sins, three sins of unbelief? What is it? He doesn't tell us. But chastisement always has a cause. It always addresses the remedy. And the remedy, if the remedy that he talked about is looking unto Jesus, then we know that the disease or the problem must be that God's children are looking somewhere else. Our eyes are not where they need to be. Now notice in the beginning of verse 5, he says, and you have forgotten. This means that this is something that they had already heard. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Now I intentionally went to the chastening part and I wanted to go back to this this is not something we haven't heard this isn't something we don't know and as the writer wrote to the Hebrews he said you forgot the exhortation about the chastening of the Lord you have forgotten it I would remind you also lest we forget Proverbs chapter 3 verses 11 through 12 here's what it says my sons despise not the chastening of the Lord neither be weary of his correction for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. So the point here is, is don't think lightly or don't refuse to submit to the correction and the chastening of the Lord. In other words, don't grow weary, don't grow faint when the chastening comes. Because it is the sign of a father who loves you. fatherly love the love of a perfect father i by far am not a perfect father there are no perfect earthly fathers here there are no perfect earthly mothers we are all still bound and fighting against the flesh the old nature we could say we have a desire to live and glorify God in our homes, but yet we don't always do right and we're not always good parents. Say, thanks, preacher. I'm just speaking truth. We're not always good. We're not oftentimes as good as we think we are. But we have a perfect father, so that means his fatherly chastisement is perfect. That means whatever we're being chastised for, if it's the sin of unbelief, then it's with cause. 
But he says the remedy is the same. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When you're corrected or disciplined, don't be faint. So chastisement, first heading, is not punishment or judgment. The second heading, chastisement, is the gracious act of our loving Father. What does it cause us to do? It causes us to remember and be reminded of who we are and remind us of what we have by His mercy we have received. Isaiah 53, 5, the Gospel in the Old Testament, it does say that Christ was chastised for our peace. We understand that the chastisement there all takes into account that He took on and took our place. But if true chastisement in the context is not this punishment as we see or judgment, this form of substitution that relates to Jesus acts as His role as our intercessor. The afflictions and the infirmities that may attend chastisement. Because by the way, chastisement scripturally, and you see this throughout the scripture, can, in, can include an affliction or an infirmity. Okay, so nobody is saying this is sunshine and rainbows, right? Chastisement, chastening can include affliction. It can include infirmity. It can include sickness. But understand that this, like everything else that comes our way, especially as believers, they remember, don't lose the context. I counted this morning. We started the book of Hebrews on August 1st of last year. So we're nine months in and we're in Hebrews 12. And we're just now really starting to see what the author had set out in Hebrews 1 about this picture of the, the Messiah who would come. And it seems to be tying up all of these ends that we didn't necessarily know how to tie them. But Romans 8.28, we're reminded that everything that comes from God, I'm paraphrasing, is for the good of all who were called according to God's purposes. Now, I know the world likes to take verses and they like to use them when it fits the circumstance. Romans 8.28 is not a verse for the unbelieving world. It's a word of comfort for those who've been called. Romans 8 and Romans 9 especially sir, a controversy in the church, why Romans 9 is precious, why the doctrine of election is precious, why the promises of God that who shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Don't treat chastisement as something that God is doing everything he can to try to separate his love from you and try to drive you out of his body. Folks, I, over the years, I'm, I don't consider myself that old, but I have heard some travesties. I have, I'm, and I'm starting to hear some things. I'm like, where in the world is this coming from? And I don't think it's going to get any better. I think, it's, I think the, the heresy that you're seeing that is infiltrated, especially the, the American church, it's here to stay. And if you're not careful, that heresy is moving quick. It's spreading like a disease. It's spreading like a cancer. It's destroying churches that were one time founded on solid biblical principles. And it's all because they're misusing Scripture. They're taking it out of context. They're using it to a, accomplish an agenda. But notice the writer does not give us the specifics of this chastisement. So he says, when it happens, don't despise it. Now, my humanity says, well, it depends on what it is. <laughs> I'm fine with the chasing of the Lord as long as it doesn't affect my health. I'm fine with the chastisement as long as it's not this. 
We studied the life of chapter 1 of Job on Wednesday night. And what Job went through. And no man on this planet has ever gone through what Job went through. And yet he was an upright man, the Bible says. And we can't point to any particular sin that he did per se, but yet God allowed it to happen. In the end, what happened to Job? Job wasn't cast off. Job wasn't sent off into the wilderness. No, Job was reminded once again of how good God is, and he was reminded again by how good God had been to him individually. So why are we not given the particulars? Probably because the writer has said, you have not yet strove against this besetting sin yet. Again, remember, the Lord deals with his people on an individual basis. We always, always look at things as collectively, but remember, chastening of the Lord is on an individual basis. The fact that they're being chastised is being addressed. And verse 5 says, here's the problem. You have forgotten the reason for the chastisement and you have forgotten the cause. Whatever sorrow is attending them in chastening is not because he means to harm them, but means that they're objects of his love. Number three, third heading. Chastisement is only for the children of God. I've already said this, but chastisement is only for the children of God. Notice very carefully, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Now I know the free will mentality says, well, he loves everybody equally exactly the same. It's not what the Bible says. You can take that position, but it says for whom. If he loves everyone the same, then you have to also believe in a universal salvation, which means everything we talk about and everything the Bible says really doesn't matter because in the end, you're all going to heaven. Whom the Lord loveth. This identifies that there's only certain people that he chastens. And if we know that the chastening is not for the unbelieving world. Now, chastisement is not for everybody except for the children of God. But it is exercised upon every believer without exception. In other words, you are not going to live your Christian life without ever being chastised. You're going to deal with it. There's going to be some time in your life that this is going to happen. The very heart of the prosperity nonsense is this. That if you will just do this, A, B, and C... You have all the tools you need that you'll never have trouble your way. And yet people are sitting, taking in this heresy and they're being diagnosed with diseases. They're being told you can be healed, but they can't be. Healings are being staged so people will look impressed. Why are these prosperity people having problems still? Because the preacher told them, if you'll come to, come to God, all your problems will go away. The exact opposite is happening here. The writer basically is saying, you are going to be chastened of the Lord. And when you do, don't grow faint. So what does he know? He knows that we are all going to suffer through periods of unbelief. No matter how holy and righteous you think you are, you are going through times where your besetting sin is just like theirs. The sin of unbelief. And it's weighed you down and it's halting you in the race that's set before you. Why did it halt you? Because you stopped looking unto Jesus and you started looking to everything and everyone else. 
That's why it's besetting. If no chastisement ever comes your way, it only proves you're not a child of God. There's no way you're going to spend your whole life and never be chastened of God. Now, I, we can get into the technicalities. What about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross that believed is always the example. We always say because the thief on the cross didn't do this, then that applies to everything else in life. Well, the thief on the cross couldn't follow in obedience. No, he couldn't follow in obedience, but guess what? The thief on the cross went to heaven. That alone right there shows us that this is where it is. But folks, let's, let's not try to find holes in God's word. Let's take God's word for what it actually says. And if you sit here today and say, I don't want the chastening of the Lord, according to this, it says the chastening of the Lord is directed towards those he loves. It's confirming to me a great glorious truth today that I'm loved by God. Again, he doesn't give the particulars of what that chastisement might look like. But he says, don't despise it. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. He uses strong words here, scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. There is some pain in this. There's no question about it. And then verse 7, if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Now, I know we, we, because we have a tendency to put ourselves in the story. If you endure chasing, this word endure is not speaking of your ability or your strength to endure it. But rather, it is if you experience this, if this, is, if this comes to your doorstep, God's dealing with you as a son. Again, some of my upbringing is coming out today. Some of the way I was brought up is coming out. That's what you're hearing. You're hearing me um, still unraveling some things in my heart and my mind because of what I was taught. So I was always taught that this is an endurance. That this is somehow this stance against the chastening of God. And as God chastens you, you know, you, you stand and, and you, you, you endure it. You don't, don't faint as if we're somehow battling directly toe-to-toe with God. I want no part of that, by the way. But that's not the context. The context is if you endure or you experience, if this comes to you or when it comes to you, that's God is dealing with you. And this is the beauty. God is dealing with you as his child. Chastisement in the Bible is defined by its recipient reaching a specific end. We learned about the end of of all things way back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And probably it has slipped our mind, but here's what it says. Regarding Christ, and going back to verse 9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. God always has a purpose. Chastening has a purpose. Many people teach today that the trouble, the chastisement of God 
these troubles, if these do not result in correcting where you're looking, they're just simply the results of living in this sin-fallen world. By the way, we'll create a lot of our own trouble by our own willful sin. Don't ever lose sight of that. There are people that mistake the chastening of God to the consequences and say, God's chastening me. No, the, the results and the consequences are because of your willful sin. So you can't, you can't start mixing things together and say, well, I, I committed this sin and this and this and that. Sometimes the result is the directive's result of what we've done. And by the way, the reason we don't sin is not because of the consequences. We don't sin because we should have the mind of Joseph when he said, how can I sin against this great God? If your motivation to not sin is the consequences, you have the wrong motivation. Your consequence, these consequences are the result, but the reason of motivation to not sin is because I don't want to sin against the holy God. And by the way, his demands, they are, they are, <laughs> they're deep demands. But chastisement always has a end purpose. So again, he describes back in verse 8, but if ye be without chastisement, Okay, this ties with the end of verse 7. For what son is he whom the father chases not? What kind of son, what kind of a father would that be if he never chastens his son? And he gives a very strong example. He says, but if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, there you go, all are partakers. If you are a child of God, you will partake in the chasing of the Lord. Then ye are bastards, you're illegitimate. That's what that means. I know some of the other translations may not use that word anymore, but that's the word. It's, it, it's, it's appointed to illegitimacy. You're not his. That's what it means. And you're not a son. And one of the glorious titles we get as a child of God is to be called sons and daughters. I don't think we comprehend what it is to be called by a holy, perfect, righteous God to be called his son and to be called his daughter. You're not just talking about some legal standing. You're talking about relationship too. You're talking about the beauty of standing and being claimed as God's son and God's daughter. Listen, I know days like today can be painful for people. I know Mother's Day and Father's Day, it, it, it always, and this is always a struggle because everybody has, a, they have a vision of what a father means and what a mother means. But I want you to understand that when we're talking about God the Father, you are talking about a perfect father that has never done a single thing wrong, has never miscalculated, has never misjudged, has never acted out of a reaction and a response and did something he regretted. Yet every father and every mother in this room has done all of those things. You've overreacted to a minor situation and went way off the deep end. If you have it, I have. Because God is a perfect father. So chastisement involves the relationship between a legitimate father and his child. So far from the chase of the Lord as being evidence of disregard, it's a proof of love. That's illustrated by the conduct, the conduct of a compassionate, loving father. In chastening you, God deals with you as he would deal with his own son. But if you're without chastisement, 
whereof all the children of God are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. So this chastisement is for the children of God. Fourth heading, chastisement is for our profit. Look at verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? In the realm of natural humanity, in normal parenting, punishment, and again, we could have a conversation, but again, punishment that provokes your child to fear or to anger or to resentment is not the result of a loving relationship. But what it is, is it's the father seeking to satisfy his own wrath. Again, I'm not standing here today calling myself a perfect parent. Far, far, far from it. But I want you to understand the way a father is supposed to deal with a son, the way a mother should deal with a son, is not meant to be done in a way that results in the child being so fearful of their father or their mother that leads them to be continually angry and resentful. It's not being carried out in a proper way. Again, do not say that I am saying let your kids make their own choices. You know me well enough. If you come and talk to me about something you're doing in parenting, you'll never hear me say that. You'll never hear me say, well, kids got to figure it out for themselves. Or you'll never hear me say, what kids really need is for you to be their best friend. You're not going to hear me say that. But you will hear me say, yes, there's correction. There's discipline. We correct our children because we love them. We don't just correct our children because we want them to represent us well. That's a sticking point. The reason you're mad is because it makes you look bad. Sometimes our kids are acting up and we're embarrassed for ourselves, and maybe, maybe they're doing something wrong, but we overreact and say, because this makes me look like a bad parent. Now I'm using all these examples, and I know it's pulling us away from the exposition here, but I want you to see, again, God is not in that realm. And so... The result of every correction that flows from our heavenly father is with a desire to help, to set him back or her back on the right path. It produces reverence, not resentment. The pleasure here, notice in verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. This often gets misunderstood. This pleasure does not mean that they were being vindictive and hateful in it. All it means is, is they, they exercised it according to their best judgment. Right? Meanings of words matter. Because if you just take it on the surface and you don't take the context, he's not saying that they had a vindictive agenda against the kids. He's saying they, and they did it according to their knowledge. They did it according to the best judgment. Well, I have a newsflash for you. Even as believers, we don't always have and use the best judgment. How many of you actually have something you look back on and you say this? What was I thinking? And at the moment, your thinking was rational. It was logical. You justified it. It made sense in your mind. You did it. Didn't even think about it. But now you look back and you say, what was I thinking? Your judgment was flawed. It was, it was, your action was determined by the circumstance in front of you. In this chastisement of the Lord, it's for our profit. Notice what he says here. 
that we, at the end of verse 10, but he, that's God, for our prophet, that we might be partakers of his holiness. There's the prophet, that we might be partakers of his holiness. On the natural level, this would be the perfect scenario. But we all know that at some point in our discipline towards our own children, we have done it and it was not done out of love. But notice again, he asked a question, how much more reverence would there be? Again, back in verse 9, if we gave our earthly fathers reverence, how much more would it be if we gave reverence to our heavenly father? The holiness that's referred to here is not God's essential holiness. And this, that's a giant theological thought I just gave you. But it's referring back to the very result of what chastisement is to bring. And that's what we see in verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. It's, it, it, is, it is, doesn't seem joyous when it's happening. Same way when you discipline a child. It, does, it is not a joyful occasion as a parent, and it's not a joyful occasion as the recipient. Sadly, I have seen some things over my life I wish I could unsee with regard to that. I wish I could unsee them. Because you could look and you could say, that is not being done out of love. But everything God does is being done out of love. One man put it this way. He said, parents often chastise their children not so much from principle as from passion. Not so much with a desire to do them good as to gratify their own irritation. But the father of our spirits only chastens his children for their profit. He makes their own wickedness correct them and their unbelief to reprove them that they may know and see that it is an evil thing that they have forsaken the Lord their God and that His fear was not in them. It is true that no chastening seems joyous for the present, but grievous. But then the phrase says, but afterward. Nevertheless, afterward. Fifth, chastisement directs us to keep our eyes on Christ. The end of verse 11, it says, Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now really, verses 12 through 15 are verses of admonition for the children of God as they endure the chastisements from the Lord. That's what these verses are. Now next week it's going to lead us into what seems to be an unrelated Subject, because we're going to be introduced to, again, Esau's fornication. Doesn't even seem like this lines up. But verses 12 through 15, that is specifically how the child of God is to endure chastisements. Remember, the writer's not told us what they are, how, what they look like, how long they're going to last. He just tells us the who, the why, and the what but that the goal is God's purposes and it's being done out of love. Wherefore, that's always a connecting thought. That's basic Bible interpretation. Context. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet 
lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The writer has made it clear that the trials or the chastisement are common to every son and daughter of God. If one lives a life that is not attended by troubles or sorrows or afflictions as a result of chastisement, it is proof that they are not the children of God. These chastisements are explained as being grievous and not joyful, but are also described as afterward that brings forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, it accomplishes the desired effect. The words before us here are not meant to be a way of escape. In other words, if you're under the chastisement of the Lord, if you want the chastisement to stop, lift up your hands and make your path straight and the chastisement of the Lord will stop. This isn't a self-help book. This is the response of chastisement. Notice what he's actually using. He's using words like feeble. He's using words like lame. Making straight paths. But he's also talking about healing. Following peace. Looking diligently. Lest any root of bitterness. Oh, there's a subject for church. Bitterness. Unforgiveness. Destroys more church than bad doctrine. Bitterness and unforgiveness. That actually the chastisement of the Lord, if we're not careful, could lead us to grow bitter and maybe even unforgiving towards God who has the right and the authority to do as He sees fit with His creation. I don't know if we totally believe that God has the right to do what He seems right. But He does. He has never nor ever will ask counsel. And He'll never ask you, what do you want to do? How do you want it to be? Yet the most popular churches in America are doing just that. How do you want your church? How do you want it to be? We'll give you every line and every way to do it. The chastisement of the Lord is a promise of all who are in Him are be, will be partakers of this. Think about people who, again, there are characters in the Bible, and I hate to use that word character because they're real men. These were real men and women. But think about those who even fell under the weight of a circumstance. Think about Peter who denied the Lord three times under the pressure of being exposed, under the pressure of being uh, basically killed for his following of Christ. You know, there was a point in time when Peter actually quit the business of the gospel. He was not preaching the gospel anymore. A lot of people don't think about that. This was not something that Peter just denied it to that servant girl and said, I don't know the man, and then he kind of went... No, he quit. Mark deserted Paul. And at one time, Paul said, he is unprofitable to me. And yet, later on, he says he is now profitable. The Scriptures, along with these reminders, ought to make us glad that when chastisement comes our way by the hands of a loving Father, it in no way changes our relationship with Him. As a son, as a child, do I believe to this day, and I'm a little bit older now, I can say this, 
I don't think it was my father or my mother's fault. I don't think it was the way they raised me. I don't think they raised us to resent. But there were times in my life where I resented being a Cochrane. But it wasn't because of bad parenting in those cases. It was because of my own sinful, stinking heart. Well, I didn't want that. And yet, I had a loving earthly father, a loving earthly mother, who they truly were trying to do what was best for me, even though I didn't like it. And yet, even that, I know they weren't perfect, but my heavenly father is. And my earthly father has gone on to glory. I don't have that counsel anymore. I don't have that loving earthly father, but I have a heavenly father. I'm still fortunate enough to have my earthly mother. But my heavenly father, the chastisement does not change my relationship with him. Yet we're told that the chastising, the chasing of the Lord may be painful, but we also know it is the best remedy against the sin which so easily besets us, which is what? Unbelief. Chasing of the Lord is meant to keep our eyes on Christ. All of these admonitions running through verse 15 refer us back to the race. The race that we must run is the life of the believer. There's nothing that will halt your walk more than unbelief. Doubt. It causes us to be halted. Now, lest you sit here today and you say, I'm glad I never struggle with the sin of unbelief. I would, I would encourage you and, and, and strongly admonish you through the Spirit. We all are prone to unbelief. Maybe even today while we sit here. You might have something right now. You're just, you're just completely untrusting that God is going to do or God has done. You're trying to find all different ways and avenues to do it. Yet we know that this sin of unbelief is manifested in the very singular fact that the chastisements come upon us because we are not looking to Christ alone in faith. The chase of the Lord is meant to bring us back to that view. Christ alone. It will, it will not be pleasant to the flesh. The Bible says it is indeed grievous, but it has the, the same purpose and the same result that our eyes will be returned to Christ. What happens when our eyes are on Christ? We receive the peace and the righteousness and the fruits that are a result of that relationship. We're reminded of them once again. I love Isaiah's, Isaiah 32, 17. It says, And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. The struggles of the chasing of the Lord are by the sweet, loving corrections of our Heavenly Father. The chase of the Lord will not preach in a church that wants just emotional and feel great about everything we heard today and say, boy, wasn't God good. But I want you to know the chase of the Lord is something to worship Him for. It's not going to make the top ten the most popular sermons you've ever heard. That's not the intent. But it is the Word. And it is God's Word all intended to bring us back to the Savior. I trust that's exactly what it does.
Let's conclude our time this morning by singing the hymn on 77. This is familiar to many of us. We sing this hymn often. Hymn 77, God of Grace.